Hey, this is David Pluff. I apologize for the audio. I'm just walking out of the NBC studios after some post-game debate analysis. What matters most in terms of the debate we just witnessed last night is obviously what the voters in Nevada and then in South Carolina and all those who are currently voting earlier by mail in Super Tuesday states think. So I think we should be careful about uh, offering interpretations when we're going to get some evidence soon. You know, but my top line thoughts were I think people understood the stakes of the debate. So you saw people come out much more aggressive than I think most of them had been in previous debates. I think Elizabeth Warren had a very, very strong night. I mean, I think probably a shot in the arm financially. You know, I thought Bernie Sanders was consistent, as he always is, and that's one of his real gifts in this campaign and in debating. Joe Biden, I think, had one of his strongest debates, was much more focused. And I think Buttigieg and Klobuchar also had their moments. Interestingly, they sort of went after each other, Mayor Pete being the aggressor there. But um, I think what you see there is these debates now aren't simply about who did well. It's directly connected to your pathway to the nomination or lack thereof. And so Mayor Pete, I think, clearly seeing Klobuchar as someone who is uh, cannibalizing or at least competing for some of votes he thinks might be his. You saw them all pile on Mike Bloomberg. I think we saw Mike Bloomberg paying the price for this being his first debate. And, uh, you know, all these candidates have gotten better with practice, and it's hard to just go up there cold. So um, I thought he had a better second half than a first half. But, you know, we'll see ultimately whether his money in advertising uh, makes a poor debate performance moot, um, but certainly probably something that's not going to continue his momentum. So, you know, as it relates to debate, we'll see, as I said, you know, how the race shakes out, particularly as it relates to voting. Um, and and see if we see polling and and actual the votes. We'll see some in Nevada on Saturday, hopefully if they get counted, and then a week from then in South Carolina. But again, this is not about, you know, figure skating judges um, or diving judges giving you a score. It's did you somehow improve your chances to be the nominee? And I think a lot of that is based on folks needing to figure out from a positioning standpoint who are they in competition with for votes? Uh, and so I think if you're Bernie Sanders, you're quite happy. You know, he and Joe Biden had some dust-ups. He and Bloomberg had some dust-ups. But for the most part, uh, Bloomberg seemed to take a lot of the fire. You saw Elizabeth Warren, I think, being aggressive with the entire field uh, to try and, I think, uh, give her candidacy a boost that's needed. Uh, and then you saw Klobuchar and Buttigieg. But I think Sanders, who is the undeniable frontrunner at this point, you know, leaves the debate stage relatively unscathed. The other thing I'd say is is the question that Chuck Todd asked about, you know, should the person who has the most delegates, even if it's not a majority, be the nominee? Uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, maybe not surprisingly, said yes, and they all said no, the rest of them. And I think what that means is a lot of them uh, probably think Sanders is going to get the most delegates, and they want to preserve their ability to to go to the convention and maybe win on a, a subsequent ballot. I personally believe that's a very, very unlikely strategy. I think uh, having party insiders, the superdelegates come in and give the nomination to someone who did not have the most delegates, uh, I think is something that would be terribly damaging to the party. So I think that bears a lot of scrutiny in the coming weeks because some candidates who might look like they just have no chance of getting anywhere near the delegate lead may stay in simply because they want to bring delegates to Milwaukee. So I think that answer to that question, um, I think, was pretty revealing. And we're going to learn a lot about the strategies in the coming weeks as we see decisions candidates are making or not making. So uh, we have another debate next week. Most importantly, Nevada caucuses on Saturday. And we'll jump into now our discussion with our guest, Ace Smith, about uh, all things California. 
A. Smith, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great honor. Thank you. So California has moved up uh, its primary, and uh, it looks like it's going to be even more important than the architects of that move might have thought. So let's start with just some basics. California has, what, 415, 416 pledged delegates? Yeah, absolutely right. It has, um, well, 370, which makes up, since we have a much smaller pool, it made up in 2016 9.3% of the total. It makes up 10.5%. So it's huge. So it's it's a massive amount of delegates. Um, we won't even talk about the super delegates. So um, I'm talking to you um, on Tuesday, February the 19th, and a ton of people have already voted. So what would you estimate the percentage of people who voted in California by the time, let's say, the South Carolina primary happens on February 29th? What percentage of the electorate um, will have already voted? Probably 40%. 40%. So, for instance, if you're, let's say, if you are clocking in around 10% and 40% is voted, so you're just doing the reductive math, you better be able to go 20% or so the rest of the way. To get viable. So, yeah. we'll talk about viability in a minute. So, what that means is... For candidates right now, um, the momentum that you've either gained or lost, you're paying a price or you're benefiting from at the ballot. So the notion that you just, like, let's say somebody pulls off a big win in South Carolina, they won't be able to get the full value of that as it relates to the California primary. True. True. And, and it's one of the completely misunderstood things about California. One of the great things about California is essentially we have 29 days to vote. So you can, if you have field programs, for instance, it's such a large state, it's almost impossible to do it all in one day. But you, if you break it up in 29 days, it's actually, field is actually very doable. But the, the flip side is, if you let too much, much water go under the bridge, uh, it's really hard to change things. Right. So, um, obviously, we have Bloomberg, who's, uh, any idea gets funded, good or bad, Um but if you were in a scenario where you had a healthy budget, but not, you know, a historical budget, what are the types of things you'd want to do in a presidential primary? The, the, what kind of campaign would you run, want to run here in California to maximize your vote share? You have to run a radically different campaign in California than anywhere else. And that's, frankly, one of the biggest mistakes I see people make again and again coming to California. You don't do it with clipboards and door knocking. That's beautiful stuff and we, we love it. It's part of our politics, but that works in local races here. In order to move stuff a point or two or three, you're talking about moving high hundreds of thousands, if not over a million people. And so, and you just don't do that unless you have some extraordinary amount of money by door knocking and canvassing and all the traditional things. You have to get into a much more mass audience uh, and, and, you have to communicate and do field in a way that's just kind of mass production. So what does that mean? You have to have the capacity, and, and you probably won't have volunteers, but you probably have to, you can probably do it patch in, paid in volunteers, but you have the capacity to do massive sweeps and IDs so that you can figure out who your voters are, who your potential voters are, apply analytics to it, and then essentially figure out who those people are. And then the beautiful thing is you got 29 days for them to vote. And so you can talk to those folks and almost check them off the list, but it's a it's a long, arduous process. And you, if you're not doing volume, you're making yourself feel good, but you're not doing anything worthwhile. So you'd also be doing persuasion, advertising, digital, TV, radio. Yep. Super expensive, though. Five million bucks a week. Minimum. Five million a week. And 
Given the size of the state, how important can candidate visits be? Tremendously important. You, you and I know that from 2008. Um, you, you were doing President Obama's campaign. I was here state director for Hillary Clinton and both those campaigns. I, I really think it's kind of the model. Uh, you have to come to California to fundraise anyway. And so both those campaigns did a huge amount of press. And, and it really did make a difference. And that's the other thing unique about these presidential campaigns is you can do all the press you want in these local races and maybe you'll get some, but it's, this is something that people are actually paying attention to. They're seeking information. So uh, whatever you can do in, I'm an old person, so I just call it free press, but, but uh, communications and, and, and getting in the news and getting in those streams is incredibly important. And the, the other thing that's just changed radically in my lifetime is all news kind of used to kind of emanate, like the bottom people's news pyramid was local and state news, and it's completely flipped. It's now national and international news. And so it's not like you're trying to grab people and get their attention. This is what they're focused on. So there's tremendous opportunity there. Right, right. Let's talk about that OIT race a little bit connected to our discussion about this early vote period. So, you know, our view, and, and maybe our data was not 100% accurate, is we closed pretty well. We thought we did relatively well on Election Day. Um, but from a raw vote standpoint, um, lost, you know, by a decent margin here. Um, and I think Hillary netted 35 or so more delegates. Um, so, so in the early vote period back in 08, what were you doing to mitigate against the momentum that we ultimately got. It wasn't enough for us to get over the hump here. But you know, maybe Ber- you know, Bernie Sanders is not going to get you know, north of 50, but he's in the lead now. Mm-hmm. And probably having run once before, he benefits from understanding California a little bit better. So what are the types of things a front runner is doing to just make sure you're, you're banking so um, you might be able to withstand a surprise from one of your opponents? Sure, and, and that's exactly what did happen. Uh, you caught a lot of momentum but there was two two obstacles, really. Obstacle number one, Edwards had soaked up a whole bunch of votes that you needed. In that early vote period. Yeah. In the early vote right. period that you right. could never get back. And I there was a lot of lot of bitter voters who wanted to take those votes back and revote them. Uh, that was that was uh, pretty important. Uh, but we also had a in the twenty nine day vote period, there were times when we had a much larger lead, and we were just aggressively banking those votes again to create a position where kind of you as you get towards election day, you have to win by twenty points rather than five points right and it seems to me in this race, if you're not Bernie Sanders, there is more pressure I mean he's got pressure too on election day, but everybody else probably has even more pressure, correct yep yeah. And the other, the other real misunder, really misunderstood thing, and, and really uh, by the pollsters. So a lot of what was done, if you go back and look at the polls from 2016, you'll see that they had Sanders way closer, if not winning, uh, in, in almost all the polls leading up. And uh, they also overstated, in a lot of cases, uh, President Obama's vote. And the reason is very simply this. Uh, the, the decline to state voters are just incredibly hard to turn out for these Democratic primaries. And so if you're looking at the slice, just kind of theoretically, it looks like it's going to be much harder than it always ends up being. It would probably end up being something like maybe 15%. And decline to states now are the second largest group here in California, right? After oh, they that, are. Right? They, right. they way Surpass out. Surpass Republicans. Yeah. They, they traditionally, the, the challenge with them 
is they are traditionally much harder to turn out for primaries than for generals. Right. And they can't just show up on election day, can they? They have to fill out a form prior. Oh, saying, they can now. They can now. So that changed. They can now. Okay. That changed. Okay, that was a good change. Okay. Yes. It's been changed since 08. Yeah. But to, to give you a sense of, of how that's working, uh, they actually even, uh, this time, the all the different county registrars sent out postcards saying, hey, do you want a ballot for, and, and, and remember, you can't vote in the Republican primary. Their party rules used to be able to, but uh, forbid that. So you really, your only viable choice is Democrat unless you want to go some minor party. And so they sent out postcards, but they only got 5% returns. Is that right? Yes. And so roughly, and so is that something that a good campaign that was on the ball should have should have juiced those numbers up significantly? Absolutely. But they just, the campaigns weren't active at that point. So those were people who would have been mailed a ballot for the primary. So yes. they can still show up on... Oh, they can still show up and right? vote down. But, but the numbers suggest that it may not be as large a number. That's interesting. And also, if you if you talk someone to, to doing an action like that, you know this better than anyone. Once you get them to do the action, the action, getting the second action is just 100 times easier. Right. No, you got to open that first door. So let's talk about uh, delegates here, which ultimately is what this nomination is about. So California, like every other state and territory, um, has a statewide threshold of 15%. Mm-hmm. So there's a set of statewide delegates that you're only eligible for if you pass 15. Um, not really asking you to play like pundit ace, but but just looking at where the race is and the math and number of candidates – what do you think would be a safe assumption about how many candidates pass that 15% threshold and then would be dividing up the statewide delegates? I think it's probably more than people think just because I do believe that Bernie Sanders may have a ceiling mm-hmm. and his ceiling may be in the 25 to 30 range. If he has ceiling, say 40% would be much more challenging. Right. He could get all the statewide delegates with that. Okay. The trick to this, and, and we just don't know, None of our crystal balls have been working so well recently. But let's imagine a scenario where Joe Biden wins South Carolina and it's kind of is coming back. I mean, there, there's so much, mo- so many momentum things that are going to happen. There's this big debate coming up in, in Nevada. There's the Nevada caucuses. There's a lot of huge momentum things that will really kind of shift things around, I think, pretty dramatically in the meantime. And, and it's just, it, it's frankly, I, I think it's a little bit unknowable. Right, right. So it sounds like that is the important question. What What is Sanders' ceiling? Because if it is lower, um, mid-20s to 30, then he probably is going to see some other candidates past 15. If it were to get into the high th- mid-30s, it's not impossible to do the math where like four or five people are getting 12, 14. And, and then, of course, like every other state, um, uh, I want to talk about Texas, which you also ran in, in 2008. Uh, which offers uh, delegates at the local level at the state senate district, but here in California at CD. What's interesting about California is a fairly healthy number of odd delegate districts, mm-hmm. meaning five or seven. And in certain scenarios, that's a way to really, you know, if you can figure out a way to steal some delegates there, you get 10 or 15 extra delegates out of California, it matters. So if you're running, um, you have run successful presidential campaigns here. So if you're running this campaign now, how does that factor into your strategy? I mean, is this really a CD by, by CD campaign in reality right now? It should. I mean, and the CDs in California are also, they're, they're almost worlds unto themselves. And so just to illustrate the point, the two seven-delegate CDs are Nancy Pelosi's number 12 and Barbara Lee's 13. 
and those are seven delegate, you know, and, and if you just think about those, it's like the, the number of delegates you could pick up from doing well in those two districts would make up the lead that, that Pete Buttigieg has right now mm-hmm. nationally, mm-hmm. just in those two CDs. Right. So what types of things, because of the campaigns will obviously, there may be a CD where there are six and mm-hmm. all the campaigns say, you know what, there's going to be three of us viable probably, so we're all going to get two. Rarely does it happen that neatly, but then there's others where you say there clearly is the ability for us, either in an even one to maybe do so well we could pick up an extra one, or an odd one. So what are the types of things that you might do in those CDs with more intensity than you would in other parts of the state? The interesting thing about a lot of the ways those CDs break, too, is they, especially in Southern California, there's a lot of those CDs that have very large Latino populations or African-American populations. Uh and, and so it allows you to, yes, you need to go CD by CD, but you can also go community by community, reaching a broader scope, but having greater impact in the CDs that are important. And that was a huge part of, of uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign in 08, which was to, we were just really focused on, on Latinos and uh, Latina, Latinas specifically. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it made it it made a huge difference on some of those. But so you have the ability in California, which is kind of cool, of of going broadly, but in a way that that creates intense focus and and actually kind of intense results that benefit you tremendously. Right, right. So let's talk about Texas for a minute, and and just because we're talking about Latinas and Latinos, where I think you employed that strategy brilliantly in '08, and then we'll come back to California. So. Um, Texas, now in 08, I will say there was kind of a caucus and primary process. You guys won the primary. We won the caucus. We ended up netting, I think, a few more delegates. But, you did. Um, I think what's fascinating is we almost overlooked Texas, which is a massive state, which is also on Super Tuesday. Um, what is different about running a presidential primary campaign in Texas versus California, or is it largely the same in terms of execution? What's different is the the early voting is different, and what I loved about Texas, and I'll never forget, is they they forever have had these massive in person voting centers, and so a lot of these and it was different from county to county, but a lot of these counties would have situations where they would they would pull up essentially the voting. They had mobile voting. They pull up in front of a place where people actually went like a Walmart. And, and that would be the voting center for the weekend. And so what you could do is you could do these just massive rallies right near the vote centers. You had to be like a thousand feet away or wherever it was. And and you could really just get people, coalesce them there, and then get them to vote. And and that was a beautiful thing. Yeah, and you guys did a brilliant job of that, particularly in West and South Texas. You just drove up massive margins. But, but the, the, I mean, there's a way to do it, and that, that still exists, which is just a wonderful Texas thing. Uh the, the caucuses, uh, what what you guys did there was just absolutely brilliant, and and that that required um, the sort of um, you know field game that that you had that was unparalleled. So, how do you look at Texas vis-a-vis this question of can how many candidates will be viable statewide? Does Sanders, in your view, have a similar ceiling there? Um, what's your view of Texas? I think it's very similar to California, mm-hmm. which is if he has a ceiling, uh, and, and part of what's what's so crazy about this race is it kind of feels like 
the, the only reason I can analogize it to is 88, where at this point, going to Super Tuesday, we remember Super Tuesday was the, the big Southern strategy, so it didn't have California and some of the other states are in it now. But going to Super Tuesday, you had, who do you have? You had Jackson, Gephardt, Dukakis, Simon, and who am I leaving Gore. out? And Gore. So, in this incredibly splendid thing, and what what Dukakis was able to do, as we all remember, was he he actually picked off a whole bunch of CDs that kind of overlapped different media markets in in a very brilliant way. Uh, but but it was the same sort of splintered type thing we're seeing today. I and I think I, I think it's depending upon how kind of unsplintered things get in the next two weeks. I.e., if if some of the more minor candidates start falling off uh, the cliff. Uh, you know, vote wise, you know, you know that that there's just really two other people, or maybe three other people, because you just can't do the math otherwise. Right. Well, the question is coming out of California and Texas and the rest of two and the rest of Super Tuesday. If you have Bloomberg and Buttigieg and Biden and Klobuchar still moving on to March 10th and March 17th, big states: Michigan, Missouri, Arizona, Florida. Sanders could get the plurality of delegates with a ceiling of 30, correct? He could. He very well could. Yeah. It's fascinating. We, we've started to see candidates come to California. Um, you've got, you mentioned the Nevada debate, then the caucuses, then South Carolina, and that week's always one of the most intense weeks in presidential politics. But you have California and Texas looming, not to mention other states. So how important is it, I mean... So let's just say that week between Nevada and South Carolina, um, which is the eastern time zone, you're in South Carolina. But how important is it to be in the ground out here, you know, a day or two, do you think, leading into, you know, Election Day? I think it's tremendously important. I think the So no sleep for these candidates. I mean, they're, no, yeah. No, you, yeah. it, it, you really do move people through uh, mass media in California. And if you can't afford it, you can otherwise get it because... The funny thing about California is California was so out of the kind of consideration for so many years. I mean, you have to historically you have to go back to '64 and '68, right? The last two major primaries, and then you have to fast forward all the way to 2008. So, Californians has always kind of felt like a little bit left out of the presidential primary process, and so I just think there's a hunger here that you can actually tap into, and and it's not just a hunger for hearing from the candidates, a hunger for consuming news and hearing everything about this. Right. So I'm curious, um, you've been responsible for a lot of cam campaigns here in California, candidate campaigns, ballot campaigns. Um, talk a little bit about what you're seeing from Bloomberg. So l let's stipulate that there is no precedent for this. I think there was a report today that he has now spent more money on uh, media that we can track than Barack Obama did in his 2012 re-election campaign. So no one's ever spent this amount of money. But you have seen folks spend a lot of money in California. Um, and what's your assessment? It seems to me you mentioned $5 million a week. But I still think even with that, if you're spending at that level, it's just harder. You know, we see some states where Bloomberg's moved up, you know, into the 20s, um, smaller states. California just, even if you're spending $5 million, it's hard to really move. And so what's your assessment of what do you think his possibilities are here? He's still got another couple of weeks of spending. I mean, do you think it's possible he could push into the 20s? I think everything's possible at this point. I really do. And uh, I just wouldn't want to rule anything out. And, and I think his fate, though, is, yes, it's tied to what he can do to communicate with voters and 
in spending a lot of money, but I think it's also tied on the you know, to the fate and and the and the rise or the downfall of his opponents. Right. Right. No, he's less dependent. I mean, he he has more dependencies, I think, on his trajectory than others. So, talk about on election night when you're, I'm sure, um, going to be diving deep into the numbers as returns come in, um, whether it's by CD or or media market or county. Talk about a few places where you're going to be super interested to see what happens and why. The, I mean, the first thing you always want to know, and and let me just kind of back up and say there's there's two there's two ways to win a statewide race in California, and that have traditionally they've worked. One is to run up remarkably big numbers in the Bay Area and the I eighty corridor, and then just essentially break even. Down south. Down south. Mm-hmm. And because it California really does function as two very distinct states. And the other way is to break even but not lose, not get crushed in the Bay Area. But do but you you will never run up the same margins in Southern California. You can run up in Northern California, but there are more voters, especially in a presidential race, than there is in a statewide race, run up some decent margins down there and, and that's a way to win. And so you you if you're Bernie Sanders people, you're looking at the margins you have coming out of the Bay Area. You know, are you are you running the table? And if you're not running the table in the Bay Area, uh, I think you got some stuff to worry about because um, that's that's the way he succeeds tremendously. Uh, if you're another candidate that's on the ascent, I think you're going to kind of look at uh, because I think the voters are a lot more movable in Southern California. You're looking at how you're doing in the Los Angeles area, uh, Los Angeles media market, which is, of course, Riverside, um, Orange, Ventura, L.A. County, and San Bernardino. And it actually goes all the way up into Kern. Massive, massive part of the state. And if you if you are running up decent, respectable numbers there, uh, say, for instance, if you're Bloomberg, you can have a really good night. And why are voters in the southern part of the state more movable than in the northern? And are you speaking specifically about a Democratic primary? I'm talking about any election, anywhere. It's just, it's really a cultural thing. Folks in Northern California are a lot more tuned in, and it's always been true, into politics. You can stand in line at your coffee shop and get in schmoozing with people, and they'll tell you why they're upset about their local supervisor, or the, and they can tell you who their congressperson is and their state rep, et cetera, et cetera. In Southern California, you're lucky if you can get them to tell you one of the senators, the president of the United States, and the governor. It's just a different – there's different industries that dominate down there. People just aren't as interested. And so uh, th- there's usually a lot more um, flexibility. Right. So you mentioned Bloomberg is, is a candidate with potential down south. Who do you think are the biggest threats to Bernie Sanders? Probably not to win the Bay Area but keep his margins down. Uh, I think you'd have to say uh, Pete Buttigieg. Um, I think clearly, you know, the question of Biden is his viability. If he remains viable, I think he's a huge threat. And um, if he doesn't, I think you have to look at what's happening with Bloomberg. Right, right. What's your sense on turnout here? I Whether that's a number or a common a thermometer, super strong, okay. And and I, I guess I'd well, say— Well, there, there are some myths about it. Yeah. And I ran numbers and projections— um, for you here, uh, I'm so. La- let's talk about what happened last time. Last time, uh, there was a 
62% turnout among Dems. This is in 16. In 16. And in 18.5% turnout for declining states. Uh, I'm thinking it's going to be a little bit higher, probably more like 65 and 20. But uh, the ultimate pie, and and remember one of the things that's tricky about uh, about turnout models in Democratic presidential primary is Democrats, that's the only place they can vote, and, and they vote with gusto. Uh, and decline to states, they have to do this extra step. Uh, and uh, they also just aren't historically great primary voters. So if there's a place where if you were like a Bernie Sanders or Bloomberg where you could actually move numbers, I, it would be there. And and I don't I don't have enough insight in knowing what they're doing, but but there's a lot of potential there because you could move that vote, I think, by up to like 10 percent. Right. So as it relates to lessons we can learn out of California, and I guess, you know, if you, if you want to include Texas in this, given your experience there. Um, now, obviously, there's a lot of other states voting on March 3rd. But, you know, then we move into, uh, you know, Missouri, North Carolina, another state you have presidential experience in, Arizona, Florida, Illinois, Ohio. When we look at um, maybe it's, you know, declined to state, that's the term here in California. You know, other states use other terms like independent or unaffiliated. Their vote share and turnout, uh, performance in the African-American community, Latino, Asian community. Like, do you think that you'll be able to draw a pretty direct line from what happens here demographically on March 3rd to those other states? Or or should we be careful about doing that? I think with some groups of voters, yes, which is I think with um, – I think there's some correlation between what you can do with the Latino vote in California and elsewhere and also with the African-American vote. Uh, but the, the the independent voters have, in California are, I think, a different flavor. Mm-hmm. And to kind of wrap your brain around that, the largest percentage uh, recently, you know, kind of uh, of independent voters in the states has generally been in the Bay Area like San Francisco, Alameda, uh, contra costs, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's kind of not what you think of when you think of independent voters. They tend to be, you know, essentially best description is they tend to be socially very liberal, uh, if not progressive, uh, but fiscally a little bit more conservative, but it it's not an anti-tax tax kind of fiscal flavor. It's, it's more of a, just show me you're being smart with my money. Right. So there'll be some important lessons we can learn out of what might happen in future primaries here, particularly as it relates to, it seems like, some of the minority voting groups. Yep. But less on independence. Um, so what will happen? Will we know on election night here in California both who's won the raw vote and the delegate total, or are we going to have to wait a while for that? Oh, vote? never. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unless I mean, it's a blowout, right? There is. I mean, it's like, I just crashed me up every last number of election cycles, everyone wants to say 100% of the voting is in and there's still millions of votes uncounted. And uh, it's just, what, what happens is, I mean, there's there's two things. Uh, a lot of people just are showing up uh, with vote-by-mail ballots to their to their precincts, on election, day. on election days mm-hmm. and just dropping them off. It, and it's kind of funny. Californians are so used to either, you know, there's a certain group of voters who are just used to voting by mail and they vote by mail and they sit down on their computers and they do it over the weekends. And then there's a group of voters who always enjoyed voting in person but now are getting 
ballots by mail, but they actually like to take their kids or have the experience of going to the polling place. And so there's a huge amount of turnout in there's also a huge amount of provisional ballots. And and you know, the numbers are just staggering compared to other states. And why is that? Just the size of the state? Size of the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, people also there's people move around a lot in California, as you know, and so there's just a lot of people who show up and they forgot to re-register, but they're registered somewhere else in California. And and thanks to the all the rules that were changed uh, after the 2000 election, provisional voting, uh, you, you know, you, you really can make that happen. Right, right. So do you think that when you reflect on where California is now, it's clearly going to play, we think anyway, a pretty significant role maybe in thinning the field, maybe in giving somebody a big delegate yield like a Bernie Sanders. If not, that could impact the race. But being on the same day as the rest of the states, as big as California is, I mean, do you think that this has ended up uh, as it was intended? Do you think maybe it would have been better to go a couple weeks later? What's your view of, um, and it's challenging because, you know, as we've talked, candidates are in Nevada, they're in South Carolina, they've got to go to Texas, they've got to go to Alabama. California is clearly the magnet on that day, but still just three days after South Carolina. I'm just curious how you assess, um, you know, where it landed date-wise. I think it's, it's going to turn out to be a great thing for California. I just think it's going to take a few cycles for it to really shake out. And what's different is that it's changed permanently now. So the last couple of times when we've played around with moving it, uh, it's just been a, a one-off type thing. And uh, it's now permanently moved. I just think these these elections, uh, it, it always takes, a, you know, the dynamic of having a few cycles and see how things really go. And people will look back and figure it out. And I, look, I'm, I'm a California exceptionalist, so I, I think – uh, we should have a much bigger voice than we've had. And uh, for goodness sakes, I mean, the last half of the last century, what, there were eight presidents, roughly speaking, and we two of them came from California. And uh, a lot of the big change things come from California. So California does deserve a bigger voice, and I think we'll get one. Right. Actually, what's interesting to me is just given the fact that, you know, there is a scenario, it, it sounds like you believe Sanders' ceiling may be a, a little too low to accomplish this, but... You know, Sanders could basically secure the plurality delegate lead if he were to, you know, net 100 delegates out of here. So for the rest of the candidates, they need to prevent that. And I I think, if anything, California should be getting more time and money than it is just because I think it's got an outsize. So um, last thing, Ace, you mentioned, you know, presidents coming from California. You were um, – you have a long history with Kamala Harris. uh, helping her win uh, different elections throughout the state. We're helping in her presidential race. With a little bit of time and space, any observation on, I guess, specifically uh, Kamala, who entered with such, I think, promise and strength, had a moment, uh, you know, I think in that debate where she had the exchange with Biden, where it looked like she may take off. But also you had Booker and Andrew Yang and all the all the candidates of diversity uh, you know, not left, and we're left with all white candidates, uh, mostly men. Maybe too soon, but any observations on why that was? I think Democratic voters are so desperate to beat Trump, they just don't want to kind of go out their comfort zone and, and take any risks. And I oh. think they saw all those candidates as, even even if they were just a slight risk, and, and they're just kind of like, let's just be really safe and get this right. And even, so this time we'll kind of, put aside our wanting to fall in love with someone 
to just making sure we get it right. And I think that that doomed a lot of candidacies. Yeah. It's going to be fascinating because obviously I hope more than maybe anything in my life that one of these candidates ends up beating Trump. But, you know, falling in love is how you create excitement and enthusiasm and you know, it's hard. It's hard to paint by numbers in these things. I, I've you know, you you did it. Well, I've been on the other side too. Way. It's it's hard. Um, well, A. Smith, thank you for your time today. Um, I think um, folks need to get smart about California and Texas, uh, and hopefully begin to spend time with media market maps and congressional district delegate allocations, um, because there's different ways this race could fall. Actually, any way it falls. So if if somebody were to come out of here with a big net. Um, they probably get a huge uh, leg up in terms of the nomination. Uh, and if basically we just split the delegates, I think it probably means, uh, you know, the rest of March gets even more interesting. Um, and so your view right now, and I'll just ask you, so is you think that it's more likely than not that California is not going to end up where one candidate, and I think at this point we all think it'd probably be Sanders, nets such a large amount of delegates that they gain that kind of lead that it's hard to give up. You think things probably are a little more distributed? I think that with yeah. with the one caveat, big caveat, if the race remains as splintered as, as it is as we sit here speaking today, the opposite could happen, which is Sanders comes out with a massive delegate lead. Right, which he may never give up. So let me ask you a question just as a longtime Democratic strategist and, and someone who cares deeply about the party. Do you have a view on... If we don't have a candidate who reaches the majority pledge delegate threshold because of splintering, but someone is the plurality leader, do you think that person should be our nominee, or do you think we should head to the convention? I think the way we decide these things is by going to conventions. That's mm-hmm. the process. Mm-hmm. So I, it's it's easy to get angry at the process, but that's what we have. Right. I think the other scenario might be the other candidates who fall short decide that they're going to throw their support to the pledge delegate plurality leader, right? So we avoid a convention fight. But uh, I think California is the most important um, factor in this question. Yes. Um, because if if the delegates here get relatively evenly distributed, it's hard to see how someone gets a majority. I agree. So I think there's not enough focus on that. So uh, if somebody, you know, nets a lot out of here, that person may have a fighting chance to get to majority. Um, they certainly would have a fighting chance to be plurality delegate leader. But if things are spread relatively evenly, um, you know, it seems like we're, it's, it's hard to do the math. Particularly in that scenario, it would mean probably multiple people did well enough on Super Tuesday to keep going on. Mm-hmm. Right? And to your point about 88, you know, eventually that thinned out. Um, uh, and it was really Jackson into caucus at the end. But if we have four candidates going deep into March and deep into April with the Mid-Atlantic, it's hard to see how you get to majority. And the one thing that's changed that that is also a lot you know, that kind of doesn't get baked into people's thinking is it, back in the say '88, everyone was still hewing to the uh, you know the, the federal uh, limits, and so the, it was much easier to run out of money. And that's out the window now. So people campaigns don't run out of money. Uh, by and large, and so I just think all these these things will go on uh, much longer for that reason as well. Well, let me ask you the last question then. So, right. So historically, people get out when they run out of money. Do you think this time there may be some people who have the ability to go on financially, 
uh, or organizationally. But their delegate path just gets so narrow that they decide for the good of the party they get out. That would be counter to political behavior. What's your view of that? I, I tend to be think be optimistic about human nature and hope that they'll throw in for the greater good. Yeah, I mean, because my view on this is once it's clear we're going to have a nominee, uh, you know, if not in numbers, in reality. You know, we got Trump looming out there. Amen. With more money than we've ever seen before, more data and, and digital sophistication, um, and someone who's, you know, more obsessed with winning re-election than any president maybe put together. So yes. we got to get to the main event here. Can't agree more. All right. A. Smith, thank you. Thank you. Great honor. Well, hopefully you got from the conversation with A. Smith how different the California primary is from uh, really the rest of the country, but the complexity, uh, how expensive it is to run a campaign, you know, the delegate situation, the fact that, you know, you're not just dealing with one state, but at least two states really in terms of, of political behavior. So um, California is going to be critical. Uh, the question is, is, is it something that gives somebody the kind of delegate yield they need to seize if not an impenetrable, a fortified delegate lead, or is it going to be something that gets more evenly distributed, uh, which means um, the race certainly will continue, if not to Milwaukee, uh, deep into the calendar. So uh, hopefully you learned something about California and Texas, a place where Ace has also led uh, successful presidential primary campaigns. Mm-hmm.